You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to Rudolf Steiner Audio. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation. This is also formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 14. My chief aim in what follows is to show how the two streams of world history, the heathen or pagan stream and the Christian stream, meet in our life how they affect one another and are connected with events in the whole universe. In order to examine this more closely, however, we must today first engage in some preliminary observations. It is essential that we should discriminate as exactly as possible how the pagan worldview, taking it in the widest sense, for indeed it is still and must remain at the basis of our modern outlook, how this pagan worldview differs from the Christian, whose full reality has, so far, passed into human awareness only to a very limited extent. The point is, as I have often pointed out, that we have now come to a time when what we may call the scientific picture of the world and what we call the moral order of the universe, to which, of course, also belongs the religious view of the world, stand side by side utterly unconnected. For people today, more than they are aware of, science and morality are two quite separate things, which, if they honestly strive to understand the world through modern science, they cannot begin to unite. That is why the greatest part of the progressive theology of the 19th and 20th centuries actually contains no Christology. I have often remarked on the existence of such books as Adolf Harnack's titled The Nature of Christianity, in which there is no reason whatever why the name of Christ should be mentioned. For what is referred to there as Christ, in quotes, is none other than the deity met with in the Old Testament as Jehovah. There is really no actual difference between Harnack's Christ and Jehovah. That is, there is no difference between what is said of the Christ being and what followers of the Old Testament view of the universe said of their God, Jehovah. If we take the idea of Christ, held today by many people, and compare it with the rest of their outlook on life, there is no reason whatever why they should speak of Christ and Christianity. For to speak of Christ and Christianity, and at the same time hold the kind of nationalist views they do, is an absolute contradiction. These things only escape people's notice today because they avoid courageously drawing the logical conclusion from what is there before them. The widest rift, however, the widest gulf, exists between the view of things held by natural science and that held by Christianity. And the most important task of our time is to build a bridge over the gulf. A scientific outlook, such as every farm laborer has today, even if he is unaware of it, is an offspring of the nineteenth century, 
and it is good not always to describe these things in the abstract, but to see how they also become concrete and specific. I have often mentioned the name of the prominent personality of the 19th century, one who directs our attention directly to the scientific worldview. I refer to Julius Robert Mayer, whom we may associate with the 19th century scientific outlook, although in his case it is somewhat misleading. You know that it is popularly believed that the law of conservation of energy originated with him, or, to speak more accurately, the law that the universe contains a constant sum of forces which can be neither increased nor lessened and can only be changed into one another. Heat, mechanical force, electricity, chemical energy, all change one into the other, yet the quantity of energy existing in the universe always remains the same. Every modern physicist holds this view. Although people are not particularly aware of this law of the conservation of energy as they go about their lives, they think of natural phenomena in a way that can only be thought of when one is influenced by this law. You see, it is important to realize that certain principles may affect our actions even when such principles remain unconscious. Suppose, for instance, that one wished to make a dog understand that a double quantity of meat means that a single quantity has been consumed twice. It could not be done. The dog could not take that in consciously, but practically he will act according to this principle. For if he has the chance of snapping at a small piece or at one twice the size, he will as a rule seize the larger, other conditions being equal. And likewise a human being can be influenced by a principle without explaining it to himself in abstract form as such. Thus most people do not think of the law of conservation of energy, but they do picture the whole of nature in a way that accords with this law, because what they were taught in school was taught on the assumption that the law of conservation of energy exists. It is interesting to see how Mayer's line of thought expressed itself when he had to put it clearly to others who did not as yet think along the same lines. Julius Robert Mayer had a friend who kept a record of many of their conversations. He relates many interesting facts which enable one to gain a full understanding of the 19th century mode of thought. Let me characterize this in the following way, by means of something quite external. Julius Robert Mayer was so thoroughly steeped in the whole mode of ideas leading to that of the conservation of energy, of the mere transmutation of one force into another, that as a rule, whenever he met a friend in the street, he could not help calling to him from a distance, Nothing comes of nothing. Visiting his friend one day, Rumelin was the friend's name, knocking at the door and opening it. These were his first words, even before greeting his friend. Nothing comes of nothing. So deeply was this saying rooted in Mayer's consciousness. Wimelin tells of a very interesting discussion in which he, not as yet knowing very much of the law of the conservation of energy, wished to have it explained. Julius Robert Mayer, who came from Heilbronn, where you can see his monument, said, quote, If two horses are drawing a carriage and they go from so- for some distance, what will happen? Close quote. Quote, well, said Wimelin, the travelers in the carriage will arrive at Oregon, Oringen. 
Quote, but they turn and go back without having done anything in Oregon and return to Heilbronn? Close quote. Quote, well, replied Wimbledon, quote, in that case the one journey has, so to speak, canceled the other, so that there is apparently no result. Yet in actual fact the travelers came and went from Heilbronn and Oregon. Close quote. Quote, no, said Mayer, that is only a secondary effect. It has nothing to do with what actually happened. The outcome of the expenditure of energy on the part of the horses is something quite different. Through this expenditure of energy, the horses themselves first grew hotter, secondly the axles of the carriage around which the wheels moved became hotter, and thirdly, if we were to gauge with a delicate thermometer the grooves made by the wheels in the road, we should find that the warmth within them was greater than at the sides. That is the actual result. In the horses themselves, substances were also consumed through metabolism, All this is the actual effect. The other effect, that the people traveled backward and forward between Heilbronn and Oringen, is a secondary effect, but not the actual physical occurrence. The actual physical occurrence was the energy used by the horses, the transmutation into increased heat in the horses, the increased heat in the axles, the consumption of cart grease through friction in the wheels, the warming of the tracks on the road, and so forth." When one measures, as Mayer then did and specified the corresponding amount, one finds that the whole of the energy which the horses exerted passed into these forms of heat. The rest is all a secondary matter, a side issue. This has, of course, a certain influence on the way we view things, and the ultimate result is that we must say, quote, well, we must free natural phenomena from everything that is a side issue in the sense of strict scientific thought. For side issues have nothing to do with scientific thought in the sense it is understood in the 19th century. The secondary effect is quite outside the bounds of what natural science examines. If, however, we ask, how does what we may call moral law come to expression? In what are human worth and human dignity expressed? Certainly not in the, in quotes, primary fact that the energy of the horses is transmuted into the heat of the carriage axles. Let us reflect, however, how natural science gives no consideration whatever to this secondary effect. People of the 19th century and even Kant in the 18th formed their view of the origin of the universe simply on the basis of principles which Julius Robert Meyer so sharply defined when he separated out what belongs to nature alone from all that was for him merely secondary effect. If we bear this clearly in mind, we are obliged to recognize that people had to view the universe as constructed on the principle of natural law. All that took place through Christianity, for instance, becomes nothing more than a secondary effect, like the fact of the people journeying by coach from Halbron to Oringen, for what these people actually did there was has no relevance for natural science. Yet, do these two streams not cross in some way or other? Let us suppose Grumelin had not been quite satisfied by this explanation, but had raised the following objection. I know it does not hold good for the physicist of today, but it is applicable to the construction of a general view of the universe. 
Suppose the following was said. If the people who were travelling from Halbron to Oringen had chosen not to do so, the horses would not have expended their energy, the transmutation into heat would not have taken place, or it would have happened at a different place and under different conditions. Thus, in our scientific consideration of what happened, we are limited to that part of the event which does not lead us back to the ultimate cause. The event would never have taken place if the travelers had not supposed they had something to do in Oringen. Thus, what natural science must regard as a side issue, nevertheless, affects natural occurrences. Or, suppose that the travelers had something to do in Oringen at a definite hour. Suppose the carriage axles not only became hot, but that one of them broke. In that case, they could not have continued their journey. The breaking of the axle would then, of course, be explicable scientifically. But what occurred through this natural phenomenon, namely that something planned could not be carried out, might, as can easily be imagined, have tremendously far-reaching consequences, leading, moreover, to other natural processes which would, in their turn, have led to further consequences. Thus we see, that even when one stays put in the purely logical realm of cause and effect, very significant and grave questions arise. We must at once say that these cannot be answered by the worldview which people assimilate through education. They cannot be answered without spiritual science. They simply cannot be answered without it, for before the tendency to the natural scientific mode of thought arose, which was first brought to such precision by Julius Robert Mayer, there was not that sharp line of division between the natural scientific mode of thought and moral thought. If we consider the 12th or 13th century, we find that people's views of the moral order and the physical order always harmonized. Today people no longer read seriously, but if you read such works... I might say there are not many things left from olden times which have come down to our days quite unadulterated, but if you take works which are like vestiges of ancient worldviews, you will discover many things that prove how in earlier times the moral was carried into the physical and the physical raised to the moral. Read one of these, now already somewhat adulterated yet still fairly readable, Read one of the writings of Basilius Valentinus. When you read there about metals, planets, medicinal drugs, in almost every line you will come across adjectives applied to the metals, good, bad, sagacious metals and the like, which show that moral thinking was even applied to this domain. That, of course, could not be done today. Abstraction has gone so far that natural phenomena have been severed from all the secondary effects. As we may see in Julius Robert Mayer, one cannot say that it was through the kindness of the horse's feet that the axle grease used up the warmth produced by their movement. It is not possible to introduce any moral aspect into this scientific context. There are two domains, the natural and the moral. These stand quite separately, alongside one another. But if the world really worked in the way such concepts conceive, man could not exist at all 
in our world. He would not be there. For what is the reason for the present physical form of man? When I speak here of man's physical form, I must ask you to take the word form seriously. The natural philosophers of today do not take the expression, quote, human form, close quote, seriously. What do they do? Like Huxley and others, they count the bones of man and of the higher animals, and from the number of these they draw the conclusion that man is only a more highly evolved stage of the animal, or they count the muscles and so forth. We have repeatedly had cause to show the essential point that the line of the animal's spine is horizontal, while the human spine is vertical. And although certain animals raise themselves, the erect position is not characteristic for them. What is characteristic of the animal is the horizontal line of the spine. Upon this depends the animal's whole form. Thus I ask you to take seriously what I wish to express by the word form. This form of man, where must we look spiritually for its origin, its primary physical origin in the universe? I have already touched on this point in these lectures. I have pointed to the starry heavens, which move, whether apparently or actually as immaterial at the moment, round the earth, the sun also. Thus the sun follows the same path. But if we take into consideration the fact that the sun shifts its rising point each spring, falling behind a little in relation to the stars, we come to a specially important fact. The change in position of the vernal point can be seen in the fact that the constellation in the following year rises earlier than the sun and sets earlier, showing us that the sun falls behind. I have pointed out that even the ancient Egyptians knew that if the circumference of the heavens is divided into 360 degrees, the sun falls one day behind in 72 years, that is, in 360 times 72 years, or 25,920 years. It falls back through the whole circle and returns to the star from which it started 25,920 years ago or before. Thus we have the fact that in the universe both the stars and the sun circulate in this way. I will not go into the question of whether this revolution is only apparent or not. The important point under consideration is that the sun travels more slowly, falling behind one degree of the cosmic circle in 72 years. And 72 years, as I have already indicated, is the normal duration of a person's life. Man lives 72 years, exactly the period the sun takes to fall one degree behind the other stars. We have lost the right feeling for these things. Even as late as the Hebraic mysteries, the teacher still impressed very strongly upon his scholars that it is Jehovah who causes the sun to linger behind the stars. And with the force which the sun thus retained, he fashioned the human form, which is his earthly image. Thus, mark well, the stars run their course quickly, the sun more slowly, and so a slight difference arises, which according to these ancient mysteries, was what produced the human form. Man is born out of time in such a way that he owes his existence to the difference in velocity between the cosmic day of the stars and the cosmic day of the sun.
Nowadays, we could put it like this. If the sun were not in the universe as it is, if it were just a star like other stars, having the same velocity as other stars, what would be the consequence? The consequence would be that Luciferic powers alone would rule. That this is not so, that man is able to withdraw his whole being from Luciferic powers, is due to the circumstance that the sun does not share in the velocity of the stars, but lags behind them, not developing Luciferic velocity, but the velocity of Jehovah. And on the other hand, if there were only the sun velocity, and not that of the stars, man would not be able to project his mental powers ahead of the rest of his developmental powers, as he does at present. Such a condition would not fit well with man's overall evolution. In our time this is very striking. If we have studied spiritual science seriously, we know that someone of 36, for instance, understands things he could not at 25. Experience is necessary for the comprehension of certain things. This is not widely acknowledged today, for someone of 25 feels himself complete. He is only complete as regards mental powers, but not in experience, for experience is gained more slowly than understanding. If this were taken into account, we should not find that the young people of today already viewed things from a fixed perspective, for they would know that they could not do so before acquiring a certain amount of experience. Understanding travels with the stars, experience with the sun. Taking the span of a human life to be seventy-two years, we say that it lasts the time the sun takes to retrograde one degree. Why is this? The reason lies in a certain delicate adjustment in the cosmos. Our preliminary study obliges me to ask you to follow me for a little while into this domain. If we consider a lunar eclipse occurring in a certain year, then there will be a certain date when the eclipse can occur. The lunar eclipse occurs on the same date about every 18 years and in the same constellation. There is a periodical rhythm in lunar eclipses, a rhythm of 18 years. That is just a quarter of a cosmic day and just a quarter of a cosmic life. Man, if I may so express it, endures four such periods of darkness. Why? Because in the universe everything is in numerical harmony. On average, man's rhythmic activity of his heart gives him not only 72 years of life, but 72 pulse beats and approximately 18 respirations, again the quarter, per minute. This numerical accord is expressed in the universe by the rhythm between the 18 years, the Chaldean Saros period, so-called because the Chaldeans first discovered it, and the solar period. And it is the same rhythm as is also to be found in man in the inner mobility between his respiration and his pulse beats. Plato said, not without reason, quote, God geometrizes, man ar- arithmetizes, close quote. Thus our 72 years of life, coordinated also with our heart and pulse activity, 
in which the pulse is four times faster than the breathing, goes through the sorrows period four times. Each lifespan is therefore marked by four such pulses. Our whole human organism is constructed in relation to the universe, but we only see into its significance when we bear something else in mind as well. As I said in one of the foregoing lectures, we only properly gauge the movement of the moon, its rotation round its axis, when we connect its revolution not with the solar but with the stellar day. If we have, a, if we have stellar time in view, we must consider a shorter time, twenty-seven and one-half days for the revolution of the moon. I have told you that the moon's revolution does not quite accord with that of the sun, but with the time of the stars. Hence we only understand our lunar movement aright when we do not think of it as belonging to the solar movement, but to that of the stars. In a certain sense, therefore, the solar movement is outside the system to which the moon and stars belong. Thus our place in the universe relates on the one hand to the stellar lunar system and on the other to solar movement. Here we see the gradual divergence of solar and stellar astronomy. As we have seen, one astronomy alone confuses everything. We can only reach a right understanding if not limited to one astronomy, we say, on the one hand we have the starry system, which in a certain respect contains the moon, and on the other the system to which the sun belongs. They mutually interpenetrate, they work together. But we are wrong if we apply the same law to the two. When we realize that we have two quite different astronomies, we can also see that the cosmos in which we are embedded has two origins, but we are so placed that these two streams flow together in us. They fuse in us human beings. What is it then that takes place in us? Suppose that only what science acknowledges took place in us. All sorts of things would take place in the human organism, movements of substances and so forth. These would extend over the whole organism, also to the brain, and consequently to the senses. What then would the consequence be if the whole transmutation of substances which goes on in the human organism, and which is part of the cosmos, as I have explained, if this metabolism were to extend to the brain? We should never be able to have an awareness of our own thinking capacity. Oxygen, iron, and other substances, carbon, and so forth, of these we should say, in their mutual relations, quote, they think in us, close quote. But as a matter of fact, we are not conscious of any such thing. There is no question of its being in our consciousness. What we have as a fact of consciousness is the content of our soul life, this can only exist by virtue of the fact that this quite material process breaks down and destroys itself, and that in us there actually is no conservation of energy and substance, but room is made for the annihilation of substance for the development of our thought life. 
In fact, man is the one arena in which an actual annihilation of substance takes place. We shall never realize this as long as we do not properly understand man as such, but are only conscious of what is not human. Now, if we start from the fact that after 72 years the sun falls one degree behind in the celestial sphere, that there is this difference of velocity between the movement of the stars and that of the sun, a difference which works in us, converges, as it were, in us. And if we then picture to ourselves how the formation of our head comes from the starry heavens, and how when we, according to a very beautiful saying, first see the light, we become involved in the sun's movement, then we must say, There is in us a continual tendency to oppose the more rapid velocity of the stars with a lesser velocity. There is opposition to what the stars do within us. What is the effect of this opposition? It is the destruction of what the stars bring about in us materially. It's destruction. Destruction of the purely material law thus comes about through solar activity. Hence we may say that if in our progress through the world as human beings we kept pace, as it were, with the stars, we should accompany them in such a way as to be subject to the material laws of the universe. But this we are not. The solar laws oppose it. They hold us back. There is something within us which holds things back. One can calculate this, though the calculation cannot be pursued here first because it would take too long, and secondly because you would not be able to follow it. Here, let us say, a certain movement occurs at a certain speed, and there's a picture with an arrow pointing downward, that is, a flow takes place with a certain velocity, and the stream then fuses with another stream. It must be assumed that the other flow is going not in the same, but in the opposite direction, and there's an arrow going upward. The two streams, therefore, therefore, flow into one another. Or imagine a wind whirling with a certain velocity from above downward and another from below upward, and they whirl into one another. If we take the difference of velocity between the downward and the upward current, relating the latter to the former in such a way that a difference in velocity results, bearing the same relationship as the difference in velocity between stellar time and solar time, then the vortex created gives rise to a distinct form condensing out of this movement. One stream whirls downward, and because the other whirls upward, driving with a greater velocity, the lesser velocity would be that driving downward. This gives rise through the collision to a greater density, a certain figure or form. This figure, though here only as a schematic diagram, is a silhouette or outline of the human heart. Thus, through the meeting of the Lucifer stream and the Jehovah stream, it is possible to construct or form the figure of the human heart. It is constructed simply out of conditions in the universe. The sun movement is an expression of a slower movement which meets a quicker movement, and we are so integrated into the two movements that the silhouette of our heart arises, and on to it the rest of the human form is joined.
We see from this what mysteries are actually hidden in the cosmos. For as soon as we admit we have two astronomies whose results combine, what is the result? The human heart, the whole outlook of modern natural science, is based on the fact that it does not distinguish these two streams from one another. This brings in its train the tragic consequence that we then also have a split between natural phenomena, as observed by Julius Robert Mayer, and the secondary results he spoke of. Because people are unable to unite what works together from these two cosmic sources, man's thinking rends the world asunder into two extremes. Here lies the cosmic aspect of something tremendously significant in regard to our understanding of man and the universe. Unless man can renew in a way that accords with our modern times the knowledge contained in the ancient mysteries of a former time when man was awaiting Christianity, as I have described in the book titled Christianity as Mystical Fact, unless we can bring this ancient knowledge to life in a modern form, as must be done, all knowledge remains an illusion for that which comes to expression with such clarity in the human heart is to be found everywhere. All phenomena can be explained through the union of two streams arising from different sources. The mystery of Golgotha within the evolution of our earth, however, is something of a totally different nature from all the rest of earthly evolution. And this we shall never understand unless we begin by learning to understand the cosmos itself. What I have said today is intended as a preparation or groundwork on which we shall be able to build in our lectures of tomorrow and the day after. The end of Lecture 14